It is easier to rebuild walls than to rebuild lives. Brick and mortar go back together faster than soul and spirit. Maybe that's why churches find it more exciting to construct new buildings than reconstruct broken lives. Spiritual rebuilding is a lifelong process. When we come to the end of Nehemiah, it's as if we have arrived back at the beginning. Yes, the walls have been rebuilt, but the people have reverted to the very sins that they had been guilty of when Nehemiah arrived in the first place. He arrives for his second term as governor to face the same spiritual problems that he faced in his first term as governor. It was the same old, same old. Nehemiah teaches us a great lesson in spirituality. Spiritual renewal is an ongoing experience, not a life-changing event. Maintaining our priorities in life is always a battle. We commit ourselves to the Lord and get our priorities straightened out, only to louse things up all over again by slipping back into the same sinful patterns we were in before we committed ourselves to the Lord. It takes great persistence to maintain the right priorities, week in and week out. But that persistence is the key to lasting spiritual victory. If you think that you have arrived at spiritual victory by winning one battle today, forget it. Tomorrow's battle will be worse. The way to victory is through persevering in the basic priorities of life. The big things and the grand moments are not the way we rebuild our lives. The little things and the faithful responsibilities are the way to rebuild our lives on Jesus Christ. Rebuilding our lives requires persisting in our priorities. As one writer put it, big shots are only little shots that keep shooting. I would say spiritual giants are only dwarfs who keep growing. So, if I sound like a broken record as we conclude our study of Nehemiah, good, I should. There are basic priorities in life, and the key to spiritual victory is not so much in knowing those priorities. It is in living them every day. I find two basic priorities in life as we close out our study of Nehemiah. They are simple, they are basic, but Nehemiah comes back to them. You will never rebuild a broken and shattered life without returning to these two basic priorities. Priority number one. Worship is more important than business. Nehemiah 13, verses 15 to 22. Worship is more important than business. Commercialism is one of the greatest hindrances to spirituality, and sooner or later we all face the temptation of careers. It starts innocently enough with a little trickle, 
But that little trickle soon becomes a flood of commercial activities that overwhelm our spiritual lives. The result is that business becomes more important than worship. Careers conflict with church. Success reverses our priorities in life. I saw a great cartoon which pictures two monks in a monastery. The first monk is seated at a writing table with a quill pen and a piece of parchment as he carefully copies a verse by candlelight. The second monk says excitedly, Hey, that looks great! Now what if we took that verse, put it on a fancy mirror, and say, stuck a clock in the lower right-hand corner? That's the birth of commercialism. The danger is that we commercialize the Church of Jesus Christ. We begin to market Christianity. But there's a more personal danger than that, which we all face. Our jobs take over our lives. One of God's basic priorities in life is that our business must not become more important than our worship. When our business becomes more important to us than our worship of God, it is sin. According to Nehemiah 13, verses 15 to 18, putting job before God is profanity. Hear me again. Putting job before God is profanity. Nehemiah wrote, In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same, so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. The Jews knew that God had told them not to work on the Sabbath. It was a day set aside to worship God. The slippage started out innocently after Nehemiah was gone. The farmers in the villages began harvesting a few crops on the Sabbath because, well, there's a big storm coming and they didn't want to lose their crops. Then they began selling a few of those crops in front of their homes on the Sabbath. Well, then they needed some extra income because times were tough, so they began taking a few goods into the village to sell on the Sabbath. Then the merchants began to get into the act, and before long the trickle became a flood. Merchants from all over were trekking to Jerusalem to sell their wares on the Sabbath. After all, if you didn't, then your competitor would get the marketing edge on you and your business would fail. Nehemiah rebukes them for violating God's law. My friends, we are not Israel, and Sunday is not the Sabbath. 
Let me make that very clear. I do not believe that we are under the Old Testament law to follow the Sabbath rules. Christ freed us from the Mosaic law. There is nothing in the New Testament which says that you cannot work on Sundays. Jesus even rebuked the Pharisees for their legalism in not allowing emergency work on the Sabbath. But, my friends, be careful that the little trickle doesn't become a flood. Notice what Nehemiah says in verse 17. He calls what they are doing evil. Then Nehemiah says that they are profaning the Sabbath day. The word translated profane meant to misuse the name of God. It meant to desecrate or defile something that was holy or set apart for God. So we pollute our faith and we defile our walk with God when we put our jobs before the worship of our God, when we put our careers and pursuing our commercial endeavors ahead of God, it is nothing less than profanity. Nehemiah goes on to point out that the violation of the Sabbath was the very reason that God sent them into captivity in the first place. Thousands died, cities were destroyed, and families were uprooted because they put their jobs before God. But they haven't learned the lesson, even after God's judgment. Instead, they were now adding to the wrath of God by committing the same sins which they did before. When will they ever learn? The principle is still true today. Putting jobs before God is profanity. But Nehemiah goes on to say in verses 19 through 22, putting God before job is purity. Putting God before job is purity. It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates, so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Nehemiah takes some rather drastic steps because he knew that if he didn't stop the profanity, God would. Notice verse 22. It is all about purity. How do you purify profanity? Simple, by putting God before job. Does that mean that you can't work on Sunday? No, I'm not saying that at all. The principle is what is important here. We must make certain that the worship of our God is more important than the performance of our job. 
I find in life that we all know that basic principle, and yet we all let the affairs of this life, the pursuits of our careers, crowd out the worship of our God. And then one day we wake up and wonder why our spiritual lives seem so barren and dead. We killed our spiritual lives. We wonder why God seems so far away, so distant. Sometimes God has to get our attention so that we see how we have let our priorities get mixed up. We started so well, we were so committed, but now life is crowded with non-essentials, and we don't know how to change it. I was watching a YouTube video by professional photographer Andy Mumford. He said something so good that I had to write it down and put it on my desk. I have it over my computer. He said, In photography, as in life, the most important mathematics is subtraction. Subtract all that is distracting and unnecessary until only the essential remains. Let me say that again. Subtract all that is distracting and unnecessary until only the essential remains. Christ is the main thing, the essential focus for the Christian. There are so many distracting and unnecessary things that we can fill our lives with that will crowd Christ out of our lives. My friends, gathering together in worship on Sunday helps us keep the main thing the main thing. Prioritizing worship over work helps us keep Christ in the center of our lives. There's a Greek proverb that says, Well begun is half done. We can start well, but the distractions of life pull us away from Christ. When our priorities get messed up, we must make changes. Those changes may involve some risk. We must persist in establishing biblical priorities, subtracting those things that don't help us maintain God's priorities for life. And it may not be easy. It may cost us something, but it will be worth it in the end. I will tell you this, unless you put God before job, no matter what it costs you, you will never experience spiritual renewal. You will never rebuild your life according to God's priorities. So, the first priority is that worship is more important than business. But the second priority in verses 23 to 30 is that marriage is more important than ministry. Marriage is more important than ministry. God and family. These are the two basic priorities of life. Not very profound, is it? But I dare say you will find that broken lives most often result from failure to maintain the priority of marriage or the priority of worship. The violation of these two priorities is the cause of most shattered spiritual lives. Marriage 
is the second most spiritual decision you make in life. Who you marry is more important than what college you go to or what career you choose to follow. We can spiritualize our careers as ministries for the Lord, but no ministry is valid if it is more important than our marriage. No single decision we make in life, other than the decision to trust Jesus Christ in the first place, will affect our spiritual lives more radically than the person we marry. Our spouse can even affect our worship, the first priority of life. Nehemiah not only dealt with failure regarding the priority of worship, but he dealt with failure regarding the priority of marriage. Notice three principles regarding the priority of marriage that we see in these verses. Marriage decisions may lead to divided loyalties. That's the first one in verses 23 to 24. Marriage decisions may lead to divided loyalties. Look at verses 23 and 24. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. Thirty years earlier, Ezra had dealt with the issue of intermarriage in Ezra 10. Nehemiah had also addressed the problem eight years earlier. In fact, the people had made a covenant with God not to allow their children to intermarry with people in the surrounding nations in Nehemiah 10 verse 30. They had promised God, but soon forgot that promise. Here we are again dealing with the intermarriage to unbelievers from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Nehemiah notices the problem because half of the children in the streets were unable to speak the Hebrew language. They spoke foreign languages because that is what their foreign mothers taught them in the home. The language of the home becomes the language of life. Now, why was it wrong to marry foreign wives? That sounds so harsh by our modern standards, and and some people today try to paint it as racism. But the issue of intermarriage was religious, not racial. It was not about race, but about faith in the one true God. It was not about ethnicity, but about loyalty to God. The Ammonites worshipped the god Molech, and the Moabites worshipped the god Chemosh. In both, in both cases, they sacrificed children to death by burning them in fires as an act of worship. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered evidence of the burning of thousands of young children to death in the Phoenician colony of Carthage. Ammonite inscriptions tell of regularly offering child sacrifices to Molech. You say, well, Dave, no one I marry is going to burn babies to death, so how is that going to affect my spiritual life? True. You will not face the problem of child sacrifice in our modern Western world. However, you will face the issue of divided loyalties. If you marry someone who does not believe in Jesus Christ, you will be affected in many, many other ways. 
Over my years in the pastorate, I have often watched couples who do not share faith in Christ together slowly slip away from Christianity. It is so hard to maintain the priority of worship when your spouse has other priorities in life. It leads to divided loyalties. Marriage is a covenant, much like the covenant you make with God. And marriage can help you walk with God or draw you away from God. The story is told about a young man who comes home from college to find his father listening to one of his long-playing albums. I know that many young people don't listen to music on LP records anymore. Those include, of course, music on both sides of the record. But, But some people still do. Dad, the young man, answered, I want you to meet my fiancé. We're getting married next year. The father congratulated them both and then held out an LP record. Son, he said, remember that marriage is like one of these LP records. You get what you want on one side and take what you get on the other. He's right. That's marriage. You get what you want on one side and take what you get on the other. No returns, no refunds. Much spiritual failure comes from divided loyalties resulting from divided marriages. The marriage covenant you make with one another may conflict with the marriage covenant you make with God. It's tough to maintain a commitment to the Lord and his work when your husband or wife resents it and pulls you away from it. Furthermore, the spiritual life of the home becomes the spiritual life of the children as they grow into adulthood. That is why the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 to marry only in the Lord, only in the Lord. In verses 25 to 28, we see the second marriage principle. Marriage decisions must deal with divine prescriptions. Marriage decisions must deal with divine prescriptions. So I contended with them, and cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you, that you have committed all these great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. God tells us in the Bible exactly how to deal with these kinds of issues. God gives us his prescriptions on the issue of marriage. And here they are. Say it, know it, and stop it. Say it, know it, and stop it. Pretty simple, right? Say it. 
Nehemiah made them swear by God that they would not intermarry with those outside the faith. He wanted to hear them say it. He certainly got a little brutal about it to make his point, and I'm not suggesting we start pulling out hair to emphasize the priority. However, this was a culturally acceptable way of expressing deep feelings. Pulling the hair of another man's beard was a high insult and treated the man scornfully, not to mention that it hurt and got his attention. Nehemiah shamed the men in, into publicly committing themselves to follow God's laws regarding marriage. Say it. Know it, verse 26. Then Nehemiah brings up the example of Solomon. Solomon was Israel's most internationally famous king. He was given the daughter of Pharaoh in marriage in 1 Kings 3.1 and 7.8, which is actually the only verified instance in the history of the ancient world where the king of Egypt gave a daughter to a foreigner in marriage. They just didn't do that. But with Solomon, they did. Solomon ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines, according to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. The mother of Rehoboam, the next king after Solomon, was actually an Ammonite princess. It was Rehoboam whose policies led to a civil war that divided the kingdom of Israel from the kingdom of Judah. 1 Kings 12.19 tells us that from that day on, Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Solomon's divided loyalties from his intermarriages sowed the seeds for the destruction of the kingdom of Israel. Those seeds of civil war can be traced back to the heart of Solomon and his foreign wives. It was through these foreign wives that the worship of other gods came into the nation of Israel. Know it. Know it. Divided marriages lead to divided loyalties, which result in spiritual failure. Say it. Know it. And stop it. Verses 27 and 28. Even the grandson of the high priest Eliashib had married a daughter of Sanballat the Horonite, the arch enemy of Israel. One of the highest spiritual leaders in the nation was married to someone who opposed the true worship of God in the temple. So Nehemiah drove him out. Say it. Know it. Stop it. Over and over again, we need to teach these truths to our young people. Marriage must follow God's prescriptions. If not, there will be broken lives to pay. Third principle of marriage. Marriage decisions must focus on defiled promises. Marriage decisions must focus on defiled promises. Verses 29 to 31. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. 
Thus I purified them from everything foreign, and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task, and I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times, and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for my good. The priests had defiled their covenant with God. That means that they had made promises to God which they had broken. You see, my friends, there are promises that we make to God which are the foundation of our promises to each other. And if we violate our promises to God by our vows in marriage to each other, we are living with defiled promises to both God and our marriage. So when our commitment to God is violated by our commitment in marriage, what do we do? How do we get back on track? Is there no hope for ministry again if I have failed God in these basic priorities? After all, we can't go back and undo the decisions of life. There are no do-overs, no mulligans in such choices. We must live life from here on. In order to rebuild their broken worlds, there are two things that Nehemiah did about these defiled promises. He purified and he appointed. How did Nehemiah purify the priests who had already married foreign wives? What he did not do was dissolve the marriages as Ezra had done before in uh, Ezra 9 and 10. Ezra had taken drastic measures which Nehemiah did not follow. They caused huge social issues. According to Nehemiah 13, verse 25, Nehemiah forbade future marriages and purified the existing marriages. I believe that he purified the existing marriages by requiring them to rebuild the marriage on a godly foundation. The spouse needed to convert to become a follower of God needed to commit to worshiping God. The relationship needed to be built on biblical principles so that the marriage was whole and pure. Only then could the priest be cleared to assume or reassume his priestly duties. Once the marriage was reestablished properly, the priest could be restored or appointed to ministry. Nehemiah reappointed them to their roles as spiritual leaders, once that purification process was done and their marriages were back on a solid foundation. Now, I don't know how long this process took, but I believe that the process followed the principles of rebuilding broken marriages that Paul later lays out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There is hope, my friends, no matter how shattered your world is by sin, that you can be restored to positions of spiritual leadership, but not until your marriage is established on a biblical foundation. Restored marriages lead to restored ministries. It sounds so basic, so simple, but when all is said and done in the book of Nehemiah, it comes down to our priorities of God first Family second, getting back to the basics, starting over, rebuilding. Rebuilding our lives requires persisting in our priorities. We have to get 
back to the foundation on which we build a life properly for God. Did you notice the last verse of Nehemiah? The very last verse of this whole book. The very last responsibility Nehemiah mentions is that he arranged the wood supply for the offerings and asked God to remember his faithfulness in supplying wood. Wood. That's so basic. So simple. It's mundane. It's routine. Why leave the reader with the, with this re- routine responsibility at the end of this entire book? The last thing. If you want to rebuild your broken world, you go back to the basic principles of life. You start doing what you must do. You're faithful to tackle the little things in life. Rebuilding our broken worlds start with doing the mundane, doing the routine responsibilities of life, getting back to the basics. Worship and marriage, God and family, persistence and faithfulness, don't quit. It is faithfulness in the little things that rebuilds broken worlds. Dave Daly is a rancher whose family has grazed cattle in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California for over a century. Six generations of his family have loved this land, and his new granddaughter named Junie will be the seventh generation. A wildfire named the Bear Fire, swept through the mountains on September 8, 2020, destroying everything in its path, including his large cattle herd. He felt like the fire reduced his family legacy to ashes. Dave cried as he walked through the ravaged land the day after the fire. He had to start searching immediately if he expected to find any cattle anywhere alive. Eight cows and three baby calves had tumbled into ravines trying to escape the fire only to be burned to death. The stench of death filled the air all around him as he searched for any cattle that might have survived. Five days of searching with all of his family members, working 18 to 20 hours a day, led to finding about 80 cows out of a herd of 400 that had grazed these 90,000 acres of land just days before. He is almost out of hope when they arrive at the Hartman Bar Ridge. They have to cut through downed and still burning trees with chainsaws just to get down the road but still they push on into the charred land. And so we go on, Dave says. What will happen? This is devastating emotionally and financially. I'm not sure of the next steps. We won't quit. We need to get tougher and stronger. We never have quit for 140 years, and I won't be the first. Junie needs to see the mountains the same way we have seen them forever, to have hot chocolate on a cold fall morning and gather cows. Then they found her. A two-week-old heifer all alone in a willow patch along a, a stream. 
Her mother was dead, but she had survived. As they fed her with a bottle of milk replacer, he said, That rescue was good for my heart. Junie's first heifer, I decide. They can grow up together. How do you rebuild a broken world? You rebuild one little calf at a time. That two-week-old heifer is a snapshot of the whole book of Nehemiah. In the end, we have returned to the beginning, and we have started over. That is the way it is with spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal means constantly going back to the beginning and starting over. If your world has come crashing down around you, begin today to rebuild it on the cross of Jesus Christ. His redeeming grace is your only hope as a Christian. Go back to the cross, to the place your spiritual life began, and begin again in Christ. The cross of Christ is the only foundation for rebuilding shattered lives. Grace is our only hope. The problem may be the same old, same old, but the answer is the same old, same old too. Jesus Christ, begin again in him.